Hello and welcome to the My VA Dayton podcast coming to you from Dayton, Ohio. This is the show where we talk with veterans in the Western Ohio region to share their stories and share what's happening at the Dayton VA Medical Center. I'm your host, Gregory Tucker, and today we have a special episode in honor of Black History Month. We'll be highlighting the incredible contributions of Black Americans in the military and their impact on the arts. Joining us are three remarkable guests who have served their country and made significant strides in the world of music and entertainment. First up, let's hear from Emmett North Jr., a U.S. Army veteran and renowned guitarist. Emmett's talent has taken him around the globe, playing alongside legends like Isaac Hayes and Barry White's Love Unlimited Orchestra and allowed him to rub elbows with some of the other greats, such as appearing on the Wolfman Jack show and having a chance meeting with the godfather of rock and roll, the famous Chuck Berry. So, you know, not many people with talent like yours choose to go into the military. Can you tell us why you chose to serve, uh, why you chose to join the Army, and what was your calling or inspiration? Well, actually, I had a band when I was 17, my own band, and I... What was the name of that band? uh, The Ohio Twisters. And it's kind of funny place. Ain't that many Twisters coming through here like uh, Texas or L.A., you know. But anyway, um, I went to Cincinnati and found out how I had to register because they were still, like, drafting you into the military when I was doing my time. Right. And there were people, I had a good friend who played guitar uh, with Luber, who had just passed in the past three weeks. Uh, Me and him played guitar together, and we ended up at Fort... Dixie, New Jersey, together. Now, I didn't know he had joined because I went to Cincinnati uh, on the bus to go to the center down there to be, I guess, interviewed and checked out and stuff to be explained to. There was another guitar player from Dayton who went to Cincinnati with me who uh, he taught me a few things when I was learning. He played gospel music, and that's how we met. I went to Fort Dix, uh, Fort Jackson, South Carolina first. Then at Fort Jackson, South Carolina, I left to Fort Gordon, Georgia. At Fort Gordon, Georgia, I met Frankie Lyman. The singer used to be with Frankie Lyman and the teenagers. But I didn't know who he was when I was there at the time. We had went to the, um, to call the uh, recreational place where you rent out you know, can get instruments if you need right, to play right. guitar, bass, MWR, yeah. Yeah, I forgot what they call it now. They I think now they that? I think now they call it MWR, Morale, Welfare, and Recreation. Yeah, I forgot what it used to call the room, some kind of room. But anyway, you could, you know, get other games and stuff. Right. you going to play with. Anyway, in that particular room, um, I would rehearsing stuff a lot to myself there. But anyway, I was in the Army. I tell you, a lot of the times uh, I got off KP and guard duty because the officer wanted me and my band to play. 
So you had your own band. Did you ever think about um, getting into a military band? Was that ever a part of your career path in the military? Well, actually, I had two bands when I was in Germany. I had my band of soldiers that I played with. That was my military band, but we didn't actually do any military stuff. The USO thing for the service for three weeks, and that got me off guard duty in KP, and I was traveling to other cities, so I'd rather been doing that than stuck it, you know, with smaller groups. But when I left here in 1970, beginning of 75, um, I left here to actually go to L.A. to audition for a, a singer called Bobby Womack, which was a songwriter and singer himself. Right. He was actually, he was actually Sam Cooke's guitarist. Um, I listened to a lot of his records before I left. I noticed what label he was on. Uh, I was playing with a gospel singer when I left, so when I sometimes sing on her shows, I would do some of Bobby's stuff. So I called and talked, spoke to him, uh, telling him I wanted to come out to L.A. and audition for him. Uh, Bobby was also from Ohio. He was from Cleveland. So we had two things in common, you know. Right. But well, more things in common. So uh, I said, yeah, whenever you get out to L.A., uh, look him up. So he didn't know two months later I'd be looking him up, you know. When I got to my aunt's house, my um, Bobby Womack's office called my aunt's phone number because so I left the number at his office to reach me whenever I got in town. So they called me, and I didn't believe it was him, so I hung up on him. <laughs> uh, and my sister, I, I told her, I thought it was my cousin who also was from Dayton playing a joke. So he rang again, and I told my sister I wasn't going to answer I told her it was my cousin, Donnie, playing jokes. So she answered the phone, and it was Bobby Womack. And I almost fell to my knees. <laughs> so we talked for a few minutes and told him where I was and who I was, and I wanted to audition for him. So he gave me his address in uh, L.A. Because I was staying in Pasadena, uh, I guess about 10, 15 miles outside of L.A. Anyway... Right. He said, give me your address and I'll mail you some of my albums. So he mailed me about three of his albums listened to. I did. And actually, and once I got to Bobby Womack's office, I found out um, at going to his office, his PR guy told me that Bobby was in New York at the time at a record label. Well, he said he helped me out as much as he could. I told him I I came out to L.A. to audition for Bobby. And I said, I didn't know he wasn't going to be here. He just said, well, give me a name and number and address. And he says, look, Bobby's going on tour in a few months. And he says he's only going to be on the road for like a month over in Europe. And then when you come back to the United States, you're going to be um, out of work again. So he says there's other artists in the building like Barry White, he says, now I hear Barry White put you on a retainer. And he's also looking for guitar players. So that piqued my interest because Sammy Davis Jr. had an office in that building. Wolfman Jack's producer had an office in the same building. So I just told Bobby Womack's PR guy, I may as well go to everybody's office and fill out an application. So it, it was blind luck that you <laughs> fell into that, huh? Like, good timing, too. Absolutely. <laughs> Everything's about timing, the right place at the right time. People were looking for guitar players at that time, so yeah. Yeah, it got really good for me. 
Mm-hmm. Temple is that after that, I just went down from the tenth floor to the fifth floor to Barry White's office. Told him, uh, literally, I know his sister was at the front desk. I told her who I was and what I come to do: play guitar for Barry White audition. And she sent me to another office, and other guy in the office, other offices were Barry's school friends. So he sent me down to the rehearsal studio, telling you know, telling who I am, and they're gonna check me out. So I went and did that, and. Three weeks later, I was, it was history because I went and met Barry at Sound, uh, Soul Train. I had lived with the band members for three weeks learning Barry's music before I even knew I was going to get hired. So how long, did you play, how long did you play with Barry White? Uh, ten years. Wow, not ten years. Not one time. Right. And you played with I played other... With him, I played with him from 75 to 79. Then in 79 and 70, 79 and 80, I was working for Wolfman Jack. And I got a chance to work with Chuck Berry on Wolfman Jack's show. But I had met Chuck Berry. I ran into Chuck Berry two weeks before we met on Wolfman Jack's show. I was leaving Dayton on Red Eye going back to L.A., and I had to stop over in St. Louis, which is where Chuck Berry's from. So Chuck Berry was at the kitchen uh, of late, called that Red Eye. From oh, yeah. St. Louis, back to L.A. And the gate that I was going to was hardly any people at that gate. He was the only person at the gate. Oh, really? Just a bunch of women. But when I got over to see who it was, it was Chuck Berry. So I just said, no, I just shit out on this. Yeah. Uh, I backed out. So two weeks later, I didn't know that Chuck was going to be on Wolfman Jack's show. When I got back to L.A., I didn't know he was going to be on that show either. So his band, he played on the show with our band, the band that I was playing with with Wolfman Jack. So in other words, I I played with two people, famous people at the same time. Now, I'm going to play one of my songs that was recorded uh, on one of my smooth jazz albums. And it's also a jazz fusion album called uh, In The Zone. This song was called Montuno. It's got a Latin feel to it. our next guest up after these messages. Our next guest will be Alan Bomar-Jones, a U.S. Navy veteran and accomplished actor. We'll hear more of his story after we return from this break. This is a message from the U.S. Department of Veterans Affairs. If you were exposed to toxic substances while serving in the military, A new law called the PACT Act may make you eligible for additional benefits and care. The PACT Act benefits veterans of the Vietnam era, Gulf War era, and post 9-11 era who were exposed to toxic fumes, burn pits, Agent Orange, radiation, and other environmental hazards. Survivors of toxic exposed veterans and veterans who served in specific countries in Africa, the Middle East, and Southwest Asia are also potentially eligible. Learn more about the PACT Act by going to va.gov pact 
or by calling 1-800-MY-VA-411. We at VA are here for you, and we're ready to get you the care and benefits you've earned and deserve. I'm Mike Richmond. And welcome back. As mentioned, we have some excerpts from our guest, Alan Bomar Jones, a U.S. Navy veteran and accomplished actor. One of the things that Alan shared with us was by him serving in the U.S. Navy, it taught him the importance of teamwork and dedication, along with qualities that are essential in the world of acting and filmmaking. Now, Alan has appeared in numerous films alongside Hollywood heavyweights like John Travolta and Matthew McConaughey. That's here. More of Alan's story. Now, Alan, how did you start with this acting? Well, and that's a great question because that's going to bring me back to how I got into the military. Okay. What a lot of people don't know is I... I was, for lack of better words, a juvenile delinquent when I was in high school. I get to the 12th grade and I decided to drop out and just to see what the streets were like, which was not a good idea. However, what I had the advantage of is I had two older brothers who went into the Navy. And I'll never forget one day I'm hanging out at home, getting ready to catch the bus downtown, and my oldest brother came home on leave. And man, when he walked in that door with that Navy uniform on, I didn't know what to think. I was, I was just in awe. And, you know, his hair was clean cut. And I mean, it was just, it was a really great moment for me. And uh, he asked me while he was home finally, what, what was I going to do? You know, now that I'm not in school anymore, am I going to go to college? What's going on? And I really didn't know. He said, you know, you need to, you need to get in the military. You know, I just kind of ignored him. And it's like, okay, whatever. And then he asked me once he got out, which he was on the verge of his last year, that I should come live with him in Chicago, which I thought that was cool. So I hung out on the streets of Dayton for that whole year. And then by, I'd say, probably late summer, uh, I went and stayed with him in, in, uh, the Na- in, in Chicago. And while I was there, he talked me into going into the Navy. He took me down to the recruiting office. I didn't even know he was going to do it. And he said, I want you to go in and talk to these people. Because he could see that I wasn't, you know, I wasn't motivated to do anything. And I went in there and I talked to them. And the next thing I know, I'm on a late night flight to <laughs> to a boot you camp were, in Great you were Lakes. Shanghai? I'm telling you, man. Hell <laughs> oh, yeah. But it was the best thing that ever happened to me um, because I really embraced the experience. Because I've always been a kind of young man that when I do something, I put my all into it, whether it's good or bad. And so when I got into the Navy, I wanted to be the I wanted to, to excel, and I did. And um, as a result, two and a half years later, when I got out, I went straight into college because I had that, that VA, um, you know, um, school um, tuition money coming in. And, you know, the rest is history because, oh, this is the part I need to not miss in being in the military. So I'm on base, and there was a part-time job opened up that you could operate the movies at night for the soldiers. And I said, oh, I, I'll do that. So what I would do is go in, I'd set up the chairs, and I would go in the booth. And I, and back then, it wasn't as easy as pushing a button. You had to really take these large reels <laughs> and put them on, you know what I mean, and feed yeah. them down in through the camera right. and back around. Right. Thread it. 
Yeah, and and when I was doing that, I was and inside of the reels, the case was the synopsis of the movie and all the actors, and it talked about that, and that was when I got my bug and said, "Man, that looks like something I'd like to do." Um, but I've got to tell you one of the funny experiences of doing that. So I'm sitting in the booth and I'm I'm operating, and I start the movie. Everybody said not there, and the movie comes on and nothing, nothing. <laughs> Somebody looked back and said, hey, Alan, turn the sound up. <laughs> so I'm reaching around trying to sound, you know, turn the sound up, and I look at the case, and it said silent movie. Oh. And I stuck my head out the booth. I said, it's a silent movie, and they all busted out laughing because that's when Mel Brooks did silent movie. Oh, okay. yeah. yeah. And it really was a silent movie because I thought I had messed up, man. So, But anyway, after I got out of the military, that's when I decided to go to Sinclair Community College, start taking acting classes. And um, from there, you know, I just start auditioning. I have to give kudos to community theater because that's where I got my acting chops. And then I became a resident artist at the Human Race Theater Company. And then from there, I got the confidence to just go out into wherever it was within driving distance and audition right. and start <laughs> working as a regional actor. And then I'd say probably in 2018. No, no. When, whenever... I did um, criminal activities. That was my first movie. I started auditioning for them, that, and, and I started finding luck. And I said, you know, this is a lot easier. <laughs> you go in one day or one week and you work and you're done with the play. You got to rehearse for seven to eight weeks or six to eight weeks. And then you put the play on for two or three weeks. So it takes months and months. And I thought this is much easier. So I've been focused mostly on the movies and, and TV. Yeah. So what was your first role? Uh, the, as an actor, whether not, not just movies, but period. On period. Stage, that's, yeah. that's What's really your good. very first role? Well, how far back do you want me to go? All the way back. <laughs> okay. I'm in the fourth I'm, grade. Okay. That's, there you go. That's and and our teacher would take us to the uh, auditorium and we get on stage. And I, we didn't know she was prepping us for a show. She teaches how to project and all that. And then um, about four or five weeks later, we did this show. And I played the king of the sea. And my line, which I always say when I tell people, my line was, I am the king of the bottom of the sea, and everything that lives here belongs to me. The fish, the crustaceans, and the shells. I am the king of the bottom of the sea. And that was all I had. And man, I was the proudest king. And you didn't get the role for Little Mermaid? <laughs> no. Uh, no. They should have hired you on the spot for that. I know. So what was your first serious acting role? Really good. I love your questions. My first really serious acting role would have been Fences by August Wilson, directed by Sheila Ramsey, a really good, the late Sheila Ramsey, a very good friend of mine. And um, she actually introduced me to August Wilson because when she was going to direct it, she called me and said, hey, have you ever heard of August Wilson? I said, nope. She said, come on down here and audition from the, I'm doing Fences and I want you to audition. I said, okay. So I go down and audition, and she gave me the lead role, which was Troy Maxim. Now, I don't know if you know anything about fences, but Troy Maxim talks 85% of the time in the show. I had never, to that point, had that amount of lines to memorize. And I was teaching at Colonel White at the time, and, I, and then going to rehearsals at night. So trying to fit in memorization was mind-boggling. And she sat me down and she told me something that I pass on to the young people that I teach right there at Wright State. She said, Alan, you have one job as an actor. Learn your lines. 
She said, I'll do the rest. I'll direct you. I'll make you good. But you got to know your lines. If you don't know your lines, then you're no good to us. So is there a secret to that? I mean, there's methods for sure. And it's funny. This is so timely. I was just <laughs> working with a young man who's a comedian in town, and he wants me to teach him to be an actor. His name's Neil. And one of Neil's biggest problems is memorization. And so I went through a list of memorization techniques that I have used over the years that will work really well for him. But, you know, also you got to commit the time to it. And, uh, you know, things like, uh, for instance, now that they have cell phones, this is easy method to use, is you, if you're doing, like if you have scenes, you do the other person's lines, then you don't say anything. Then you do the other person's lines, then you don't say anything. You do the other person's line, then you play it back, you listen to their lines, and then you fill in with your line. Then their next line comes, and then you fill in with your line. Well, two things happen. One is you start to get the flow of doing a scene, and two, you're learning your cue lines when you're supposed to speak. That was what the problem was. Remember I was telling you guys about my acting class when I got here? Yeah. That was a problem on Monday. They're standing on stage going, is it my turn to talk? Okay. Is it my <laughs> turn to talk? Oh. So I use, that's one of my famous techniques. And another one is, because I used to travel a lot out of town, to do shows. And so when I would travel, I would record all of my lines. At the time, we had CD players in cars. <laughs> and I would throw a CD in and just listen to my lines all the way. And the reason for that is we memorize music from listening. I mean, if I said, tell me your favorite song, you could quote the entire all the lines in the song because you've heard it so much. Right. Not because you've read it or you wrote it, but because the repetition of hearing. And that's how I teach them memory. And I'm sure with acting, too, it's not just knowing the lines, but knowing when to come in yes. and how to react to yes. the other person. Uh, to, yeah. to as, as opposed to just, as I sit here, I just read uh, my notes. Uh, <laughs> and and there's there's no interaction uh, yeah, until we right. get down to the interview you're part. Right. And, and this is all, you know, off the cuff. So I, I can't imagine actually learning like you said, 80% 80 or more of the play is yeah. you. Uh, and yeah. then having to know when that other person's coming in and how to react to their, their yeah. comments. And, and to make those lines, and this is why I always get on my kids about learning early, to make them sound like you're talking and not right. like you're reciting to make lines. make them come to life. Right. To make it just sound natural, yeah. Right. And that, that play in itself, I always tell people that play taught me acting, mm -hmm. you know, because August wrote enough lines for that guy to say, you're going to have to learn how to just regurgitate this <laughs> like you're talking to people. Yeah. And I love that. I'd, I'd play that role again today, even though I have a poor memory. But <laughs> <laughs> that was a great question. Uh -huh. Yeah. So as far as with the young people that you're teaching at the uh, town hall mm -hmm. theater, mm -hmm. uh, you had mentioned that that's one of the uh, highlights or exciting mm -hmm. parts right there. How are children, what are some of the tools that you're giving children for us to help them with their memorization? I wish I could teleport you guys back to see some of the shows I've directed and then compare them to other shows that direct with kids. One of the problems I found when I first started directing kids is too many directors were say, oh, but they're just kids. We just get them out on stage so their parents can see them. They're, that's it. And I hate that idea. I would challenge kids just as much as a director as I challenge adults. And they will, under strong direction, they will step up to the challenge. Another thing is it, they've got to have fun. You know, so I, I always include a lot of things that are funny to them 
or that they would do one of those situations or just running around and, and, and having a good time. And then the third thing is I try to teach them the same things we're talking about is that when you're talking to someone, you're behaving with someone, make it as natural as possible, just like real life. And I take them through the whole process of being real. And another thing that uh, people enjoy about my shows is if I got roles for 15 kids and I've got 50 kids in the show, those 50 kids aren't just going to be standing around on stage. They're going to be getting bit parts to do. They're going to be given and I should not say this, lines to say, <laughs> or action. You know, they're going to be involved. And so what young people in Vandalia have discovered with me, if you're an Alan show, you're going to shine. It's one way or the other, you're going to shine, whether you have lines or songs or not. So I find it very enjoyable working with, with children because they have no fear. They haven't gotten to our age where we think, oh, that feels silly, or no, I'm not going to do that. And they've waited until they're 60 years old. They've retired. They've got time on their hands now that mm -hmm. they can go pursue other dreams right. uh, that they've never had time to do before. Right. There is no cutoff. Yeah. They will always need, whether it's on stage, film, or TV, they will always need an actor at 60, yeah. 65, exactly. 70, 80. 80. They will always need those. It's better to cast someone that age than to try to find a 35-year-old and say, okay, you're going to be this 75-year-old yeah. I know Dustin Hoffman did that with, with one movie. He played several generations right. of the character. But that's, that's, not a, that's not unusual because he is the same guy that he was playing all those years. Right. But, the, you know, and that's, that's the good thing about acting is if, if you're serious and you're willing to travel and really willing to work hard, no matter what age you are when you get in, you will find something for you. But are there yourself. additional challenges when you're older to to start learning? Yeah, career? yeah. If you, uh, you know, dementia, you know, that's a challenge. Mm -hmm. But articulation, experiences, body movement, whatever, whatever your limitations are, that's what you probably would go for. You would be cast in. The only limitation that would hurt you in this business is your memory. That's it. Um, now, one of the things that I, I remember, uh, Fellini, what he used to do, and that would be he would look for characters who or people who looked like the characters that mm -hmm. he would cast in his films. Yeah. Now, that's Federico Fellini. And that's um, uh -huh. that's a hard truth that I have to explain to my 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 students at Wright State is that I don't care how good you are. I don't care how you think you can do better than that girl or guy. If they think, now that looks like a Midwestern waitress to me, you don't. You're a little too pretty or whatever the case may be. They're going to cast that person that visually looks that way. And, you know, I, 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 I don't, I won't necessarily say that I went into the, the film. Because in theater, I, I was cast as any and everything, and that was great. But when I went into film and TV that I had an idea of what I was auditioning for, I found out that I was being cast as judges, detectives, police officers, anybody of authority is where they would mostly <laughs> cast me. I've even played a mayor and a pastor. So I've said, okay, and once I figured that out, then that's what I aimed for. Now, here's So the, you embrace the stereotype. Absolutely. Yeah. You've got to because you can't right. fight the system of Hollywood. That's that's what they're, they think I'm... And, and this is always something that I hear sometime down the line, and it's always funny, is, well, I don't want to limit myself. 
Okay, well, you don't have to. They will. <laughs> <You know? laughs> yes. They will. You know? Not everyone is a Meryl Streep or yeah, a Dustin go. Hoffman and, yeah, yeah. and has that breadth yeah. in, in uh, their experience in, in yeah. acting. And the people you named yes. have started all in certain roles yes. that they played. And when they got the respect, they said, okay. You know, Tom Hanks is another one of those. Yeah, now I'm exactly. going to do this, and I'm going to do that, and I'm going to try that. Right. And people will let them do it, you know. But, right. yeah, you got to earn that. But yeah. I think uh, more more often than not, the character actor is just as employed, if not more employed, than sometimes yeah. than the leading man or leading woman that <laughs> has a longer career. Oh, my goodness. You are the first human being that I've talked about acting that notices that. Yeah. There is this documentary called, what's the name of that guy in that thing? <laughs> and it's all character actors talking yes. about their work and how right. they are. They, they're in more movies than the stars are, That's if you right. think about it. That's right. Because they need those character actors. They need those faces yeah. that you see in the, the same guy playing the detective that's exactly. playing the chief, that's playing the, oh, often, yeah. Often fitting that stereotype. That. And it's like, yeah. okay, we, we know exactly who we're going to cast because he's right. done it a hundred times. Right. When I did um, Extremely Wicked, Shockingly Evil, and Vile, one of the guys playing the attorney, I had seen him on several TV shows, and I could not remember his name, but I knew his face. Yeah. And I walked up to him, and I said, man, I love your work. And I tried to name something he was in, and I said, weren't you in The, the Good Wife? He said, yeah, I played so-and-so. And so. I said, oh, okay. And then I started, at, and you know, you look at, if you go back in IMDB, these guys, you look at their resume, oh, my goodness. Yeah. It is huge. They work all the time. Absolutely. And Absolutely. we as viewers, we don't care. We don't mind that we see them nope. because they're not, quote, unquote, the focus of the movie. Right. And those are the people that after a while they start working less and less because the focus of what we want right. changes. Exactly. Yeah. Alan, we were getting into your experience as far as with the Dayton VA. How did you come about? Um, so after I went to college and was acting in the community, I started teaching. And then I got a great opportunity at Dayton Public Schools to become a, a drama teacher at Colonel White. And that gave me insurance, which was great, you know. So at the time, I didn't have any real needs, you know. But if I wanted to go to a doctor, I, I even got my first cataract, not cataract, cataract but um, eye correction surgery. All of that through the school and it cost me very little. Then they cut over 300 teachers. And, you know, the arts teachers were one of the first ones to go. And my wife and I found ourselves unemployed, and so we started uh, doing, uh, I said, I'm going to dive into acting 100%, but I was not covered by anything, you know. And I remember having a conversation with my brother, and he said, well, why don't you go to the VA? And I'm like, what are you talking about? He said, the VA hospital, you're military, you can go to the VA hospital. I said, I don't have any money to be a part. Go. Go, talk to them, sign up, they'll start you know, seeing you. And, and I thought he was nuts. I thought, well, maybe you did. And, you know, maybe something happened when you were in the, in the military and, and they gave you that opportunity. So I went and I signed up and immediately they started working on my diabetes because that was one of the issues I had. And they found other things, um, you know, high blood pressure and all that. And, and I started getting medication and I found that the billing was very minimum. And I'm like, what the heck's going on here? And I have been going there ever since. And the funny thing is, when I first started going there, and I love my wife to death, we are the best partners in the world, she was a little skeptical. Are you going to the VA? Well, yeah. Why? Because they take care of me. Hello? 
you know, I'm still an uninsured man. I, I mean, now I have Medicare because I'm retired. But uh, they take wonderful care of me. And she realized it. It really was sold to her when I broke my leg in January. And they took me to a regular hospital. And I kept saying, take me to the VA, take me to the VA. So they finally transferred me to, to the VA. And they took good care of me. And they gave me therapy. And they gave me medication. And she thought that we were just, you know, oh, we're going to get all flooded with all these bills and everything. And between Medicaid and the VA, I have saw, I've seen probably the most minimal bills that I've ever had in my life. And I know this sounds cliche, but they changed my life. They literally changed my life. I now wake up, do things, go to bed feeling secure, feeling comfort. Sorry, guys. Hey, Alan, that was an amazing story. And finally, we'll have Hollis Nelson, a U.S. Army veteran and talented bass player, sharing his story after this break. I was in the military. I didn't know that when I left, I was eligible for health care through the VA. I thought you had to be disabled or been wounded. Another vet told me I should check it out. Now, I have the care I need at the Dayton VA. Don't wait another day to see how the VA may help you. I'm a vet, and it's my VA. Make it your VA today. Call 937-268-6511, extension 2159 to enroll, or visit dayton.va.gov. This message is from the U.S. Department of Veterans Affairs. If you're having a tough time or thinking about suicide, you're not alone, and there's hope. VA's Veterans Crisis Line has responders who listen and help. Many are veterans or have veteran family members and friends, so they're prepared to address your challenges. Don't wait. Dial 988, then press 1. And now, Hollis Milson, a U.S. Army veteran and talented bass player, for the renowned funk band Sun. Hollis served in the U.S. Army. He stated that it provided him with the opportunity to hone his musical skills and perform for audiences locally and around the world. Hollis' thunderous bass lines have been sampled, a staple of the legendary funk band Sun. Now, on to Hollis sharing his journey. Once you had transplanted here to Dayton, uh-huh. uh, you started playing in school. That's where you came in contact far as with members of the Majestics, yeah. right? Yeah, I joined the choir at Roosevelt to you know, kind of give me some music experience. Okay, now there was one of the uh, music teachers here that a lot of famous or renowned artists from this era that they... Uh, Mr. Spencer. Mr. Spencer, right. Mr. Right. Spencer had all of us, but Lakeside, he had all of us. Right. Went through him. Right. Now, with that, who taught you how, or who was your influence on playing your instrument, your particular instrument? Uh, I was, I liked Motown. Okay, so that influenced you? Yeah. 
I like the temp because we had a singing group. We did Temptations. We did a lot of Temptations. Uh, be we had initially did James Brown, then we got the singing group. You know, cause you know you usually play whatever singers sing. So they were singing the Temptations, and I love the Temptations. You know, cause they got those, you know, they got the bass intros. Oh, the the Funk Brothers. <laughs> yeah, they got those bass intros. You know, or whatever they have. Mm-hmm. Some intro, you know. And, so is uh, that what made you decide to play the bass? No, I was. Pl- we all had guitars. <laughs> I had a guitar. Marshall, you know, with Ohio players, had a guitar. Booster Collins, he had a guitar. But they, it was so many guitar players, nobody didn't need no guitar players no more. So they said, well, we need a bass player. We got to have a bass player. <laughs> and so we had to all switch <laughs> to bass. And the guy had told me, so he said, he said, man, we need a bass player. I had a lead guitar. He said, man, we had a, need a bass player. I said, man, I don't know how to play bass. He said, man, I can show you how to do it. I said, what? I said, man, if you can do that, let's go. Nice. <laughs> the guy nice. said, well, I can do it. The guy took me over there and showed me about two or three songs initially, and I've been playing ever since. Just like that. Great. And I didn't know... C minor from C major at the time, and I didn't go. I went to St. Clair later and learned, you know, about music. But initially, I didn't know C minor from C major, and I traveled all over the world. Yeah, well, it's done you well. So, tell us about your experience with playing uh, with Sun. Well, Sun, that was a unique experience. I got to do some things that I would have. Never imagined, you know, like playing at the Apollo on the show with James Brown, of course, you know. But we was at Apollo with James Brown in 1978. You know, I was kind of, he was kind of in the middle of the beginning and the end of all of the great things that he had done, you know. So at the time, we was at Apollo. It wasn't that big. But uh, some of the unique shows, I think one of the best shows that we ever did was in Oakland, California. When we first went to California at the Oakland Coliseum with Booster Collins, George Clinton, Parliament, and Funkadelics, and all them James Brown guys was there that night. Because James Brown wasn't working at the time. You know, you had Mesa, Yo, St. Clair, all those guys, the baddest guys in the business. <laughs> all of them at the same night, you know. And I guess I never thought about all these great guys that I'm up against, you know, because if I had, I probably <laughs> Not wanted to go, you know. So were you starstruck by them, or were they just like part of the part of the gang to you? No, or that was the that particular night was kind of like part of the game because I never seen nothing like that before, and I never seen nothing like that after. As far as the, just the the love and the, everybody not trying, to, we just having fun playing and just having fun. Nobody trying to outdo the other, and nobody concerned about who the best and all of this and that, like people you know normally do, you know. And it was just <clears throat> one of the greatest, and that was my first trip to California, one of the greatest experience of all times. Hmm. I said, man, I sure wish I had that video that, that night of that show that night. Now, part of your history also, you recorded at King Records, right? I recorded at King Records, Chess Records, and Capitol Records. Mm-hmm. Now, one thing I, I know in your conversation you were saying you also are confused a lot of times with playing with the uh, Ohio players. 
Tell us about that. Was uh, three in my original group, the Majestics. It was six members. Well, three of them went to the Ohio Blairs. You know, the, the, the drama, the leader of the Ohio Players, now Diamond, started playing with the Majestics. And Clarence, the guitar player with the Ohio Players, started playing with the Majestics. And the trumpet player, who's no longer there, he started playing with the Majestics. And so yeah, I had played with all those guys years before they went to the Ohio Players. And then they have some had some advertising out one time that they use our picture, the, <laughs> the open eye low. Because they was the one that was in the Ohio Players, and that's why people was thinking I was in the Ohio Players. Because <laughs> they, they had had these pictures of me with them, uh, you know. And I, I had told them one time, I said, I'm going to have to sue y'all. People going on here thinking I'm in the Ohio Players and think I got money and they going to rob me and give me, and here I am broke. <laughs> Well, hey, when the business they say no, uh, no publicity or any publicity is not bad publicity, right? Yeah. So, uh, okay, I started out. We got uh, process in at Fort Campbell, and we went to Fort Knox. I went on. I went in the military on December seventh, nineteen sixty-five. I didn't know about that at the time, <laughs> and uh, went to uh, Fort Knox, Kentucky. So we was only there for about a, a week uh, before Christmas came. We came home for Christmas. <laughs> and uh, I had some knots upside my head. And <laughs> I'm getting this fight. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. I, I had a bunch of lip and everything when I came home from the military. <laughs> now, did you join right after high school or? Now, what happened? When I got, for as I know, when I got my military papers, my military paper wasn't filled out completely. They didn't have no reporting date or reporting place or nothing on my military papers. And so when I first got them, I didn't really pay no attention or whatever. And I had got them in the summer of 65. So now we had Thanksgiving of 65. We had went to Toledo to a family. And I was telling my stepdad about these papers that I have. And so my stepfather got the paper and looked at He said, boy, these are draft papers. <laughs> <laughs> Oops. <laughs> yeah. He said, you need to go down there Monday morning and, and take care of this. I said, okay. Monday morning came. I went down there Monday morning. They filled out the papers. I had to leave Wednesday. <laughs> oh, wow. That was quick. Yeah, yeah. that was quick. <laughs> and so I came back and told everybody, well, so I had to go to, down to Georgia for Visit my daddy before I left. Because you know, I'm going in the military, you don't know if you're coming back or not, you know. Mm -hmm. So that's, uh, it just just hit me just like that, you know, because mm -hmm. I didn't really pay no attention to those draft papers. And, and the draft paper was blank for as I can remember. Mm. So, And I think they tricked me. <laughs> okay. So why did you join, uh, why did you choose the uh, career field telecommunications? I didn't choose that. They chose that for me. Because when I took my test in Cincinnati that morning, we left Dayton with the Cincinnati across the, from the park down there in the federal building where we got our shots. That's where we took the test and all of this and that. And when I first took my test, I didn't want to go to the military. I had just marked, went down the thing and marked X's everywhere. <laughs> <laughs> so they came and got me 
and they came and got me and told me could be in the room and told me says he says he said first of all he said you're going to the military he said I don't care what you do when you get there he said I don't care if you shove them or no <laughs> he said you're going in the military he said what I'm saying to you is uh, we're going to give you a chance to take this test again and you, that you should do the best that you can do so you can be the best that you can be. Which made sense to me, you know. Uh -huh. <laughs> Which made sense to me. So I went back and took the test again. Then they come out and tell me, I'm in telephone communication. I'm like, y'all must have the wrong guy. Because <laughs> <laughs> I never had no idea that I, I could do nothing like that, you know. I just... My confidence wasn't too high at that point, you know. It's all <laughs> and, I, and, I, and I went on and become, of course, became one of the best telecommunications people that they had, of course. Well, now I literally went to the VA immediately because of what had happened when I got out of the military. Because and the same thing happened to me when I went in the military. These those boots <laughs> had my feet, the bottom of my foot was so mm -hmm. sore. That I couldn't walk from those boots. Yeah. And the same thing happened when I, I was those lineman boots yeah. that I was wearing. And my foot got, and so I went to the VA because I had insurance with my with the telephone company then, but I don't know why I went to the VA, but I chose to go yeah. to the VA, and that's where I went, and I always went to the VA. Right. Well, those to, combat boots don't come with Dr. Scholl's lining, yeah. so they're... They're they're known for sort of causing some issues, but yeah, that's, yeah. that's that's why I was asking. It's like okay, so that, that you had some issues from from your military service that uh, yeah. that brought you to the VA right after you left the military. Yes. Tell us tell us about your experience with the VA ever since then. Well, I've had good experience with the VA. So it's good to have the VA yeah. plus your regular. Right insurance. So, sure. so in some cases, because, you know, people may not know that you can still have your outside provider and at the same time utilize the VA as well. So overall, if you were telling another veteran out there uh -huh. who may not have uh, health insurance in place right now, yeah. serve their country, what would you tell them as far as uh, why they should use the VA. They have some of the best doctors in the world, as far as I know. They got uh, good service uh, in the last couple of years. You know, things have gotten much better. And I'm guessing they can take care of any problem medical that you got because they have so many people that they have to deal with and that they should be experienced all around on everything because, you know, many, many, many veterans with the many, many problems, that pretty much covers everything. As mentioned earlier, these are excerpts from previous interviews that can be found on My VA Dayton podcast, wherever you get your podcasts from. You can hear their full interviews. Again, these are veterans who have served with honor. Their stories are a testament to the resilience and the talent of black Americans 
in the military and beyond. Again, we want to thank you for listening. Our veterans put everything on the line to protect our freedom. We may never be able to repay them for their sacrifice, but we can show them just how much we appreciate all they've done. Every day, hundreds of people just like you volunteer to help our veterans. You can help by simply sharing your time, lending a warm smile, a supportive hand, or a sympathetic ear to someone who needs it. Everyone can do something to make our veterans know how much we appreciate their service. What will you do? The Dayton VA changed my life. There was a time I was jobless and homeless, didn't know where to turn for help. I felt like there was no hope for me. Then I learned about the Dayton VA. They helped me find the help I needed to get back on track. I received support, got a job, found a place to live. I got my life back. Don't wait another day to see how the VA may help you. I'm a vet and it's my VA. Make it your VA today. To enroll, call 937-268-6511, extension 5336, or visit dayton.va.gov. This message is from the U.S. Department of Veterans Affairs. Veterans service organizations, often known as VSOs, offer many services for veterans and their families. To learn more, go to va.gov. We want to say thanks again to our special guests for taking time today to share their story. We truly enjoy hearing stories from veterans from across the region and learning more about how they found care through the Dayton VA Medical Center. And as always, we want to thank our listeners for joining us and remind them if they are a veteran and are not enrolled, to enroll with the Veterans Health Administration to receive health care benefits through the Dayton VA Medical Center. It's easy and it doesn't cost a thing. You just need to be a veteran. The simplest way to start enrollment is to call our enrollment and eligibility office at 937-268-6511, extension 4105. They can schedule an appointment for you to come to the Dayton campus or help make an appointment at one of the surrounding community-based outpatient clinics located at Springfield, Richmond, Lima, and Middletown. Again, that number is 937 938-6511, extension 4105. Veterans may also enroll by visiting www.choose.va.gov slash health. While there, you can choose from applying online or by phone or by mail. It's just that simple, really. As I said before, it doesn't cost a thing to apply. So what are you waiting for? Call us today or If you know of a veteran who is not enrolled, have them call to start taking advantage of this benefit. If you're a veteran, it's your VA. Sign up today. Join us again for another episode of My VA Dayton with the Dayton VA Medical Center. Our episodes drop 15th of each month. Thanks again for listening to My VA Dayton.